Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. How are you guys doing? Good? Fall is here. No? Oh my goodness, the colors, beautiful. You guys are sad because winter's coming, right? Some of you? Yeah. Um, well, if I haven't met you, my name's Brian. I'm one of the, I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, today I want to start us in a new series called When Church Signs Lie. You guys ever seen Church Signs? Um, I figured I'd grab a couple just to kind of get us started, lighten us up a little bit. Felt a little stiff in here this morning, so I just thought, hey, felt a little stiff. Um, do you know what hell is? Come hear our preacher. Um, this is a sign. I don't know why they do that. I think there's like a desire just to just get attention. And then I thought this was very fitting for me. Come hear our pastor. He's not very good, but he's short. Um, I, I, that, I think they were talking about the length of the message, but for me it applies in many ways. Um, <laughs> God loves you more than Kanye loves Kanye. Um, I, th- these, I, I, yeah, you can go to the next one. Smoking pot with God. Half of our church has already moved to Denver. We already, so I, I, in these signs, there's like, often you'll see too in these signs, some kind of message that like, come inside, God is here. It reminds me, um, when I grew up, there was a, a deer crossing sign close to my house. And, and, you know, I'd always, when I first started driving, I'd be scared that a deer was going to come out. And then later on, I hit a deer somewhere completely different. And, and it was funny to me that, like, I didn't sit down and do a research study, but no one, I, I could ask the whole town and probably everyone would be like, yeah, I've never seen a deer near that sign. Just because you put a sign up of this deer crossing doesn't mean that there's actually deer going to cross that road. In the same way, just with church, just because we put a sign up that says, like, Jesus is here, um, doesn't really mean that Jesus' presence is here. Uh, and now, before you get really theologically nervous, let me explain. Like, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? But there is a sense in Scripture we're talking about today that God's manifest presence comes upon a people. And I believe that for us in the church, um, we often build on the wrong foundation. We build on the wrong foundation of what these people are building on, which is just, let's be culturally relevant. Um, but I don't think Jesus, sometimes we feel that way as Christians, that almost as Jesus kind of has a bad PR problem, and he, he needs a better PR rep, and we almost feel nervous talking to someone else, and almost embarrassed on the inside that we're a Christian, because we know so many people who've spoken horribly for the church, or, or when we think of church leaders, we think of protest. Or, or someone saying something just politically provocative or moral failure in the church. And just let's be honest, it's a hard time to be a Christian. The church, Christians are, are, are known for what they're against more than what they're for. They're more known for being homophobic than being people who love people in the, in the eyes of a loving God. A large recent report estimates that 14 million young people raised in Christian homes will walk away from the faith by 2050. 14 million losing a generation in a generation because of the church. 3,500 churches close every year. And if you're like me, that statistic brings me to a pause because it doesn't even, it doesn't even mention the churches that are on decline. Um, and yet God says, Jesus says in his scripture, that the church is the manifold wisdom of God on display. That the church is God's intent to show his good news to the world, but yet when we walk into a church and we think of that, we're kind of like, yeah, there's not a lot to see. <laughs> it doesn't really look like there's a whole lot to see going on. Um, and, and so is the church, we kind of wrestle with this question, is the church really God's best idea? 
Is that really all you had, God, was to create the church? That's your best idea. Chicago, like sometimes we think of church, oh, it's just a more convenient way for people to move from, you know, from, from Washington State to Chicago and have some Christian friends. Or um, you think even of our own community. And often, I remember my wife before our sabbatical, she just looked at me and said, just to know it, we were both tired. And she says, what's the point of this? Why do we do this every single week? You ever felt that? If we just be honest in the room, there's a sense of what, are we, what, are we, what is happening when we gather? Why do we keep pouring ourselves into this place? And it's encouraging to see now after sabbatical, she's fully alive and ready to surrender herself and sacrifice for the bride of Christ. But modern America, 59% of millennials who grew up in church have dropped out at some point. Philip Yancey said this, that the church becomes a place where nice, pleasant, bland person stands in front of nice, pleasant, bland people and encourages them to be more nicer and pleasant and bland. Welcome. <laughs> You're in good company. And so we see the sense of this, this, this the drive for cultural relevancy, and I think we laugh at that, but I think we as young, younger Christians have our own versions of that. We have this sense of sophisticated bias. That we are able, we are all have very educated opinions, but we live fearful lives. That Jesus, we're joining God in the renewal of all things. We're joining God as He makes all things new. Honor, renewal, freedom sounds great, but yet our lives often look like they're fearful, and yet we're not committed, and yet we're 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 afraid of committing ourselves to the body of Christ. This I read this article in New York Times this week. It says, "When churches have become temples of cheese, fitness, and eroticism." It's an article about in Quebec that 547 churches in Quebec have closed within the last several years. That these churches in Quebec, they've been now renovated to theaters now filled with Led Zeppelin cover bands, Zumba lessons, and fetish parties. A crucifix Halloween party featured barely dressed leather-clad dancers in front of a lit-up cross. The director stressed that it's the main function was still sacred rather than profane. And so what if our attempts at relevancy as a church, at mimicking and outdoing the world, actually limits our ministry potential? What if, what if our increasing strangeness to the Western culture is actually our advantage? So today, I want to, I want to, this series, we're going to look at four different metaphors of the church. He's the temple. He's the bride. He, we're the, I mean, we're, we're the temple, we're the bride, we're the body, and we're family. Today, I want to talk about we're the temple. Because Jesus, there's a moment in Mark 8 where Jesus' disciple says, Jesus, who do you say that, who do people say that you are? Who do you say that you are? And we want to like flip the question and let Jesus ask the question to us. Like church, Jesus, who do you say we are? And today I want us to look at how we are the temple. Before we do that, I think one of the, the way we've been crippled, this cultural relevancy is just we've, the church has lost its power. There's a powerlessness in the church. We look at church and we're, we're not seeing the, the miracles and healings that we read in Scripture. We're not seeing people come to faith in, in droves, getting baptized every week. We're not seeing an expansion of his kingdom. And there's a sense of powerlessness in the church. A scientist by the name of Charles Misner, he's, he's a general relativity, relativity specialist. He wrote a biography on um, Albert Einstein. And he says this about Einstein. He says First, he says, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that's why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man, he must have been, look, listen to this, 
Einstein must have been looking at what preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen so much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. So Einstein looked at what he'd step into a church and he goes, are you serious? You're serious? You're talking about the five P's of parenting and the five Q's of how to have a better marriage or, or whatever. He was like, I've been seeing the author of the universe. I've seen his majesty. I've seen his power. I've seen his glory through physics. I've seen so much that has blown my mind of God's presence. And yet I come in here and something is missing. Jesus has left the building. And so I want to talk about what does it mean for us to be the temple. Before we do, I want to just share with you, um, our church has been going through a process uh, of coming up with goals. This has been about a six to nine month process with various elders and deacons and voices of men and women who've gathered together to say, like, what is in the season that we must say yes to um, in which God is calling us to? And I want to say this, that every single ounce of these goals has everything to do with us seeking the presence of God so that we can then expand his presence in Chicago. And now I just want to kind of give you the high-level goals. I'm not going to read them all, but I w- first of all is our value of freedom. We long to see God's inescapable presence and undeniable power on display, and we want to create room for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this place. Amen? You guys alive? You okay? This is Okay, a few of you. That we want to create space in this season, and so we're going to be starting, um, starting with these monthly prayer and worship nights where really the goal is just to create space for the ministry of the Spirit. I mean, this is a place to invite. It's not going to be a place for us to talk about Missio Dei. It's not going to be a place for us to talk about goals and strategy. It's just going to be a place for you to invite your friends, create space for us to explore Jesus, be in awe of his presence. We're going to start that December 5th, and it's going to be usually the first Wednesday of the month, and we want to encourage our gospel communities to cancel that week so we can make this a priority and create margin. Amen? Does anybody else want that? Just me. I don't know about you, but I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm tired of just doing church as usual. I'm, I'm ready to see God's presence come down. The reason we started this church is to see unbelievers have a safe place to explore Christianity, but we also did it because we wanted to see what happened in the New Testament come alive. I remember the stories of, of I'm reading this book called God's Forever Family. It's about the Jesus hippie movement. You read that one or heard it? Thank you, Greg. And the, these Jesus people, all, basically, they, they would go to church as they knew it, and they were just reading their Bibles, and they would come to these church leaders, and they go, what is this you've created? I've been reading the New Testament. I'm seeing stories of, of miracles and healing and people coming to know Jesus, and I'm seeing all this stuff here, but yet this looks nothing like that. You have a, a five-minute countdown and a great published video that, that looks really polished and a great skit, but where is this? I don't know about you, but I want to experience that, and so we want to create space. We, we also, praise God, just this past week, by God's favor, we're given keys to the Lincoln Square Friendship Center. Isn't that amazing? Can you guys praise God for that? <laughs> that God is opening up space for us to have space. As we've been praying into this vision, we're saying, God, we need space. We need space to meet God, and so we're going to be looking at making these morning, when you're doing your devotional or quiet time, whatever you want to call it, spending time with God, soaking in his presence, we're just going to open up the space in the morning soon and just like, hey, let's just all do it together for work. So we're just going to do whatever we can to create as much space to see God. Second, honor. We, we want to inspire and equip every partner to give 2% of their time 
to live with those on the margins, to do life with those on the margins, 2% of your time um, to do the ministry Jesus did, to be hanging out, becoming friends with, with, with tax collectors and sinners and eating with outsiders, confronting injustice, comforting a hurting world. We want you to, 2% of your time, I mean, that's nothing. That's a one week, well, one hour a week. That's four hours a month. That's a week a year. Everybody can do that. And this will result in us being this border-crossing community. That as people come to Lincoln Square to seek comfort, come to Lincoln Square to be safe, we will actually then say, you know what, you've actually come, and we want to meet you where you are, but we're going to actually in turn send you back out to be this border-crossing community, and that then we partner with other organizations to see justice and the orphan and the widow and the marginalized be filled with honor, compassion, and joy. Amen? Um, and this is, so this is three-and-a-half-year goals, what we desire. And then, then lastly, we want to see 15 gospel communities in this place. Now, we are not a church with gospel communities. We believe that we are a church of gospel communities, that basically the church is these gospel communities gathering, and we have five now, and we want to see more leaders raise up to host open up your home, to show hospitality, to love people. And we want to be marked by every partner having a role. And hear this, we want to make sure every need in our body is met, that no needs would go unmet. That's what happened in the early church, right? So if we're saying, I want to see happen in the Bible, what happened then happened now, then we want to see no needs go unmet in this place. We want to see the poor taken care of. We want to see people who have no resources or nowhere to live have places to live. We want to see every single one of you have your needs met, that it would be a witness to a world. And as a result of this, we're going to be a spiritually diverse community. We want to see 100 people go through Alpha, which is um, Alpha is a course to help people explore Jesus, show hospitality. And then out of that, we want to plant two churches and provide $50,000 in church planting grants. That's something we're celebrating, Amen. So this is where we're headed, and I pray that you would seek um, where, where is God calling you to play a role? Like, where is God moving in your heart to step into this? Um, this is going to be a long journey. This is not, gonna, this is not a rah-rah speech. This is something that we've toiled and labored over that we all feel confident in, um, that we are going to take a slow prod by the Holy Spirit in the same direction as a community, and that this is going to take seasons and longings and desires to be aligned, and it's going to take time, but we want to see God do, again, what he did in old. Amen? So that's, our, that's, that's where we're going. Can you guys give a hand for that? Make me feel better. As a, you know. Just kidding. All to God. So, back to the sermon. I just kind of had to tie that in there somehow today. <laughs> the church is known as powerless now. And so some of you are probably wondering, if you're anybody that is like me and just naturally skeptical, you're like, yeah, of course you would say that, Brian, that the church is God's idea. You're a pastor. You get paid by this place. <laughs> but actually, I don't, I, think if, I, don't, I don't do this because I need this. I think I still got enough hustle that I could go out and sell some stuff and, and do another job. I don't need this. I believe in this. I believe in this. I still believe that the church is God's best idea. And there's a way of doing church that empties us of the God's presence. And there's a way of church that fills us with God's presence. So what I want to do today is I want to take you through a really quick crash course of this imagery of temple throughout the Bible. Is that cool? Garden temple. First of all, temple. The temple, when you think of temple, think presence. That in the beginning... The first temple was actually in the Garden of Eden. 
We look later and we find out a temple is built later on by Solomon, but yet everything that, that was built for God's presence to dwell in was all imagery back to the very first garden. And if you look at the garden, it begins with God breathing the breath of life into the, into the dust. And it's ironic that du- all, all a temple is is brick and mortar, and all brick and mortar is is dust. And yet God takes this dust and he breathes the breath of God into it, and man comes awake and stares in the face of God. It says that, 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 that Adam and Eve walked in the garden in the cool of the day and walked and talked with a sense of intimacy, this unparalleled intimacy that Josh talked about last week, and that, that they had the sense of like oneness and unity. It was so unparalleled. There was no shame, no guilt, no rebellion. There was a sense of intimate trust and vulnerability, something we all long for. And the amazing thing about this garden temple is there was no division between heaven and earth. That this was, this is the place where heaven and earth met. This is the place that heaven and earth collided. I would go as far as to say, even though it may sound a little theologically crazy, that heaven and earth were indistinguishable at that moment. That in this moment, before anything happened, that, that, that you could not distinguish where heaven was and where earth was, that it was indistinguishable, that they were so colliding that the presence of God was just not some tie, you know, kind of feeling you got when the bridge of your favorite worship song came on. The presence of God was something that Adam and Eve felt every single moment of the day. And so they, this is all they knew. And then it also lists these elements in the garden. And when I read this, it talks about the tree of life. It goes to this river flowing the middle to the Euphrates, and it gives you all these like geographical directions. It talks about gold and onyx and precious stones. Sometimes I read that, and I just want to skip over it, and I'm like, didn't the editors, they did kind of a poor job? Um, but don't skip over that, because those details are always going to come back in your Bible, kind of like um, when you're watching The Sixth Sense for the first time, and you, you didn't think about the fact that Bruce Willis was still wearing the same jacket, and it's going to come back. So <laughs> hold on to all those things, okay? They're going to come back later on. Um, and so, so we see all these details. And then lastly, we see that God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply his image. To be fruitful and multiply and expand. You've got to think about this, that Adam is the first priest. He's the first priest of the first temple. And he says, I want you to actually take this heaven, earth, garden temple, and I want you to expand that presence. That's what he's saying when he says, go be fruitful and multiply. I want you to expand heaven on earth. I want you to expand the presence of God wherever you go. And, and so he, he, that's the first mandate. And ever since then, that's, the, that's our vocation. That's our calling, is to be people who are in God's presence and expand God's presence. And so Adam and Eve rebel against God. And ironically enough, before that, the, the, the word for serve and to till the garden is actually the word for worship, to bow oneself down low to the ground. In the New Testament, one key word for worship means bow down to ki- and to kiss. Dedicated, the dedication of the temple later on, the, all the people in Second Chronicles 7 said they saw the fire coming down to the altar and the glory of the Lord above the temple. They knelt in their faces to the ground and worshiped and gave thanks to God. And so it's the same word for serving this garden, the same ser- word for serving. And so it was the model heaven. And so Adam and Eve rebel, but God doesn't give up on his presence. Actually, you could say the rest of the whole book is about God not giving up on his presence. The whole Bible is all about that. He won't stop coming after his people continually to dwell with them and be with them. And so what they, he asked Moses to build this tabernacle, and he says in the middle, make this holy of holies. It's a 15-foot by 15-foot room. That comes back in Revelation, just like the 
sixth sense story. And, and so he says, build this little tabernacle. I want you to build this place because I want to dwell with my people. And when he builds this tabernacle, he, at the end of Exodus, it concludes this way, that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. That it was so glorious, that his presence was so thick, that because the cloud settled on it, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And yet this, this sense that God said, I'll be with you in this tabernacle, and I'll be a fire by night, and I'll be a cloud by day, and my presence is going to be thick there. And so later on, King David dreamed to build a place for the living God. He dreamed to build this permanent temple. And he didn't get to see it pass, but he passed on that dream to Solomon, and Solomon built this temple. And there's a perfectly square inner room built for the presence of God called the Holy of Holies. And we see this in this temple that the exact same thing, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And so we constantly see these same things, that the wind of God, that the breath of God had breathed into this dust is the same commotion and wind blowing into this temple. That the same spirit that blowed life into the first man and woman is the same spirit that is breathing life, sustaining these people, trying to meet his people where they are. And then the crazy thing is, is that this, when Jesus comes on the scene, this glory is no longer to be found. You never hear of the Pharisees talking about the glory of the temple. You no longer hear about the sense of the temple being filled with God's glory. But Jesus shows up and starts saying radically things like this, like, destroy this temple. Speaking of himself, and I'll raise it again in three days. So why does he refer to his resurrection as the temple? Second Corinthians later will say that when he was raised, we were raised and become new creation. Do you get it? The Garden of Eden creation, that we become this new temple. And so then and he said the word became flesh and Jesus dwelt. He tabernacled, is the word, among us. And so Jesus started to make this radical claim that the physical temple was right here and right beside him. He says, you see this temple? Strike it down, and, and it'll be raised in three days. And he's like, I'm talking about me. And this is the kind of stuff that would get you killed. This would be crazy. This would be like going in, to America, mass, mass amount, like basically the presidential inauguration, getting up, stealing the mic, and go, I am the White House. I am the White House, everybody. Like, that's what Jesus was doing. It would have got him killed. It would have probably got him killed today. He's saying that I am the place where the Shekinah glory dwells. And, the, and then later on, Jesus takes his disciples after he resurrects, and he breathes on them. They're like, what are you doing, Jesus? Is this a weird greeting? Why are you breathing on me? Your breath smells more like death and resurrection. I don't know what's happening right now. And so he breathes on them, and he goes, oh, no, it's the breath of God again. Do you see this? The Spirit of God breathing in them. And then in Acts 2, what happens? Look at this description of Acts 2. And now what happens is Jesus is saying, now you all are the temple. Because of your life, you, believing in me, now you are the indwelling place of God. And so when he looks at Acts 2, what do we see? The same sounds and commotions and winds that we saw in creation. The same sounds and noises and winds that we heard over the temple. Happening where? Over us. It says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. What seemed to be tongues of fire came to rest on each one of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the word tongues of fire is actually used of this like sense of God's presence in, in heaven and other scriptures, even in other Jude, Jude, Judaism writings. 
And so here we see that now we are the temple. We have become the Holy Spirit, not taking residence in a building, but his followers, the life of God, indwelling those who would call on the life of Jesus. So picture in your minds, not a building, but a people who are a place where heaven and earth are meeting head on. Remember what I said, that in the garden, heaven and earth were almost undistinguishable. That there's times in a moment, church, where you and I, as the church, experience a small time in a small place, and it might just be for a second, but there's a moment all of us have probably experienced where you're like, was that heaven or was that earth? Because it was so real, it was so undistinguishable because God's presence was so thick. And when that person said these words from heaven over me or where I, I just sensed God's presence so full, I couldn't distinguish what was heaven and what was earth, and heaven and earth became undistinguishable. And that is what he's saying is that you, church, listen to this. Oh, my goodness. Remember God walking in the cool of the day? Second Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and shall be their people. God's like, I want to walk in the cool of the day with you. And I think the reason most of us are so afraid of that is the fear of judgment. That to look God in the face, we're scared of judgment. Right now, I just want you to turn to your neighbor and stare at someone in the eyes for four minutes straight. Ready? I'm not going to make you do that. <laughs> because that would feel really awkward for most of you. The average person looks at their screen nine hours a day. But when we stare at someone in the eyes, uninhibited and unhindered, there's a sense of vulnerability and a sense of fear. Are you going to judge me? What do you think of me? And when we look at Jesus come on the scene, the living temple, he takes a woman who's been cursed by Pharisees and about to be stoned because she was caught sleeping with someone, which was actually probably the man's fault in the first place. And he looks at her in the eyes and says, tells the guys, drop your stones. And he stares her in the face and there's no judgment. He says, all of you drop your stones. He goes, I don't judge you. Just go and be free. And so when we meet Jesus face to face, he's not there to judge you. When the Spirit of God is there, he is there to bring his, he bring, turn condemnation into acceptance. And yes, there's conviction of sin. We're going to get into that. But I think most of us are so fearful of stepping into this space and being vulnerable because we're fear of judgment. God's like, no, I want to walk with you in the cool of the day. I want you to be my people and me to be your God. We see this elsewhere in many other scriptures. Next slide. 1 Corinthians 3, they're fighting over who's the better minister. Should it be Apollos or Paul, uh, or Paul? One watered, one planted. They're fighting over giftings in the church and who's more talented. And he says, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Like God's spirit dwells in you. And then in Ephesians 2, he says this, that the whole structure is built on this cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and he's growing us into this holy temple. In him, you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so what we see in the first church, everything that is happening in heaven is happening in the first church in the book of Acts. Everything that happens in heaven is happening in the very first church, in heaven. There is going to be no needy among them. That complete resources are at display And what do you see in the very first church. No needy among them. They were one of the most generous communities that the world had ever seen. Tim Keller says this, that the pagans back then basically gave everybody their body in promiscuity and basically gave nobody their body, but the first church came along and practically gave everybody their money and practically gave nobody their body. 
And this first church comes on the scene and says, we're going to be so generous. We're going to give away to everybody who has a need. The very first in heaven, what does it say? Every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the first church was the very most diverse community that the world had ever seen. In heaven, there's going to be no sickness, no pain. And in the first church, we see miracles of physical healing, spiritual, emotional healing. In heaven, no one outside of a relationship with God. The very first church, it says that the Lord added to their number daily. Do you see this? That in today's Christianity, we're always investigating but never committing. We're, we're, we're always positioning ourselves to have an educated opinion, but we're so fearful. And the very first church, they're just constantly receive, positioning themselves to receive the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they are willing to sacrifice their life and cross ethnic and cultural boundaries in order for the gospel to go forth. That's the result of what the Spirit does. And so... Um, and then we get to Revelation, and Jesus is standing outside the church. There's a famous passage that you've all probably heard where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we kind of teach that evangelistically. A lot of people have come to know Jesus out of that verse. It's amazing. Um, but he's standing outside the door of the church, and he says, I'm no longer welcome in my church. I'm standing at the door and knocking, asking if I can come back in. And so I, my prayer for us as a community in Lincoln Square is that we would just be a place where Jesus is here. Uh, we'd be a place that cultivates that, that we have freedom here. I pray, my prayer is that we would transform this museum-like place into a playground, that it would be a playground where people are moving freely for God to move, freely for God to act, freely to experience God's presence. And so um, I want to ask us to just contend for God's presence, contend for that, um, and that we would build up faith in this place, that we'd build up faith and be aware of his presence moving. Um, I want to go back in the Old Testament to this passage in Ezekiel 47. And in Ezekiel 47, it's this beautiful description of what the temple will be like in the end. In Revelation, it says there will be no temple because God's presence is there. But in Ezekiel 47, it portrays the future of what God's presence will be like. And it says this, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. God gave Ezekiel this vision. He says, Behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple and south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. And going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And then it says again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. So this, this river is getting from flowing, trickling from this temple. But it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he says it was waist deep. And then he measured it in a thousand. And he says the river it was, could not pass through. For the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in. A river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Next slide. And he said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. He's talking about the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea was a place you couldn't fish. It was a place that was uninhabited. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Now remember, back in the garden, what was Adam and Eve's job? Be in God's presence to expand his presence. Be fill, fill the earth. What is the role of this river that we're supposed to be swimming in? It's to go towards the Dead Sea. It's to go towards things that are not alive. It's to go towards things that don't have God's presence. It's to go towards places of brokenness and evil and justice and sin and bring God's presence there and be God's presence there among those places. That's where we're to go. 
That's where God's calling us to go, is to be in this river that flows, being his presence, but going towards things that are dead and seeing them come alive. Um, and so um, I want to just, I think these words here are very symbolic and meaningful. And I want to just talk, ask us, what keeps us from becoming the temple? What keeps us from becoming the temple? He uses this river and this, this presence flowing from the temple. He talks about ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep. I think those are all symbolic for things, for stages and the processes of becoming God's temple, process of becoming God's river. You guys with me? Um, so I want you to look, go back to those, uh, or go to the next slide. First thing that he mentions is ankle deep. You know, have you ever been around in Chicago and like a fire hydrant breaks and kids are all playing in the water and it's like, it's not really that scary, right? It's just like ankle deep water. Being in ankle deep water is not really scary at all. You, you're still, it, what I think ankle deep reminds me of is like this sense of like, the mark of ankle deep is remaining in control. So some of you are ankle deep in the water but you're still remaining very much in control. In our culture, we admire this. We admire anyone who's very um, cold and detached and remains poised. We admire someone who's just ankle deep in some ways. And, um, but God's like, they, you're still in control. Then it moves to knee deep. And at knee deep, I think, is this represents the stage of contemplating submission. Some of you are knee-deep right now in this season. You're contemplating submission to God. You're contemplating jumping full into the river. But it's still an amount of control of this. And I think one of the marks of just contemplating submission is like you're contemplating it because you've experienced it before. And you've experienced how amazing it was, but it was also so hard for you. And God moved. And I think one of the marks of like knee-deep is you're just remaining on stories of the past that God moved in your life. Some of you are like, when you talk to other Christians, you're still telling stories of what God did 10 years ago. God's like, no, I want to do a new thing in your life now, not 10 years ago. I want to, that, that thing that you're doing, like, stop relying on stories of the past when I moved. Like, I want to move in your life now. And so are you positioning yourself to completely surrender to me so I can? And so far, the mark of that is we're just still living on the distant past. Then he goes to waist deep. And if you think about being waist deep in a river, it's the sense of like, you could just fall in, but you also are like planting your feet because you have to stay firm. And the mark of, 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 of this, of waist deep, is like a sense of resistance. You feel both sides of the river. You've been caught up into God's presence before. You know what that's like, but you are somewhat marked by resistance instead of movement. David Brooks writes this of our time in an op-ed piece in New York Times. He says, we are fragile when we haven't thrown ourselves into abandonment when we're not swimmers in an ocean with no edge. If you really want to be tough, he says, make them idealistic for some cause. Make them tender for some other person. Make them committed to some worldview that puts today's temporary pain in the context of a larger hope. Emotional fragility seems like a psychological problem, but it only has a philosophical answer. People are really tough only after they take a leap of faith for some truth or mission or love. Once they've done that, they can withstand a lot. We live in an age where it is considered sophisticated to be disenchanted, but people who are enchanted are the real tough ones. And so the enchanted one says, you know what, I believe that there's a spiritual river flowing around me, and I'm just going to jump in. As scary as it is, I'm going to jump in. I think that last imagery, it says that the river was not able to be crossed. I love that imagery, that God's goodness, his river is moving no matter what. His river is moving here. And we're in a season of Missio Day where I believe some of us are caught up in that river. I think, some of, I think there's a small amount of us that are caught up into that river that's moving. 
And I think God wants to pour out a new season on us, but he's saying, I can't do that yet because you're not ready to receive it. You would not know how to handle this river. It's too powerful for you. It's too mighty for you, and you will not, you're not ready to handle it. And I think God's calling us to just like, we want to surrender, completely surrender to him. And I think a lot of us, when we were wasted, because I think a lot of us are relying on our gifting and our, our own human development and our own like, how do we grow in our skills? How do we overcome our personality defects? And we're so fixated on strategy. But if you look throughout the history of the God, God's movement, who did God use? He uses just a little bit of gifting, a little bit of our skills, and a whole lot of God's presence. A whole lot of God's presence. Hands down, every single time God's moved, that's what he does. And I want to encourage you to be reading stories where God does this. Reading stories where revival happens. Reading stories where God's magic comes, because the magic of the temple is just ordinary. It's an ordinary building, guys. The temple was an ordinary building, but it's God's presence that comes in. And so as I close, um, I just want to talk about two things that the Holy Spirit is the, the only thing that the Holy Spirit can do. Only the Holy Spirit can do. Two things. One is the conviction of sin. The conviction of sin. That like when we, have you ever tried to point someone else's wrong out? It doesn't ever go well. Defensiveness. No, what are you talking about? You did this to me. What are you? The Holy Spirit is the only one that can convict sin. It's the only one that can show you in a place that, like, you, 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 you are running from me. You are rebelling against me. You're running away from my presence. We often, like, have a sense of defensiveness, but when the Holy Spirit comes, it's not a condemnation. It's conviction. It feels completely different than when someone else calls you out. It feels completely different. When it comes from the Holy Spirit, it speaks to the heart. It speaks to your longing to be loved and accepted. It speaks to your longing for wholeness and joy and hope. Whenever the presence of God comes, whenever the Holy Spirit convicts you, it's always love casting out fear, joy overcoming mourning, peace being swall- swallowing up chaos. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes, it is, it is this sense of exhaustion becoming rest, condemnation becoming acceptance, self-obsession bowing down in worship, and light breaking into darkness. Can I get an amen? The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is it's the only thing that can leave us in awe of God. It's the only thing that can leave us in awe of God. Um, band, you guys can come up. There's so many stories where this happens. One reminds me of 1970 Asbury Revival in a college town at a 10 a.m. chapel service. There was this girl who gets up and she confesses her sins in front of everybody. And what's results is a crazy revival that lasted for over 180 hours, nonstop, 24-7. This 10 a.m. chapel service that was supposed to last for 50 minutes lasted for 150 hours. Because people had walked in, and there was an aura around it. Professors showed up to the class, and students weren't there, and they came to the prayer meeting and stayed. It was just an amazing move of God. And that's just one story. I could do, like, I could, this would be like a 20-week sermon on how God does those things. Um, there's another story of a guy named Rodney Smith. Most of you probably never heard of him, um, but he would... He would go around and travel and speak, and um, he was like an evangelist to different places like Africa and Asia and America, and he'd 
He went by Gypsy Smith, which is a great name for an evangelist to me. <laughs> Traveling evangelist at that. And this young man came up to Gypsy Smith, and he asked him this question. He said, how do I make revival happen? And Gypsy Smith said, I want you to take a piece of chalk, and I want you to draw a circle all around you. I want you to get in your quiet place where no one else is around, and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to bring revival to every ounce within that circle. And so if we want God's presence in this place, revival first has to happen with you. You have to long for God's presence. You have to want his presence to break through into your life. You have to sense a conviction of sin that causes you to be in so dependence on him that you're saying, I'm willing to start right here with me. And when that happens and we collectively come together, we are a river breaking forth into the places of injustice of our city, the places of darkness, the places that need God the most. I'm praying that for us, we will be a people, a temple where God's spirit can dwell. Would you guys stand so we can pray?